John 15, this morning, the first 17 verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I commanded you, so that you will love one another. It's pretty natural to think about extended teachings from Jesus as sermons. Preaching is the giving and explaining of God's word under the power of God's spirit. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So it's with trepidation that I have to dock him a few points for deficiency in style. As any good Presbyterian knows, a sermon has three main points. And what we have here quite clearly are only two. The first eight verses are the analogy of the vine. I'm the vine, my father is the vine dresser, you are the branches. And the next part is a commentary on the analogy, amplifying its main purpose and filling in the gaps of its limitations. Apparently, even divine analogies only go so far. If you were inclined not to critique Jesus' preaching or wanted to extend some grace in your grading, you could argue that there is a third point, but it comes from the surrounding context without which we would miss a lot of meaning. And that context flows both backwards to the departure of Judas from the disciples and forward to the cross. As Jesus preaches here, we should remember both of those events in our minds. He begins with the analogy, I am the vine, in verse 1. And again in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Vine dressing was a regular part of life in Israel, and the analogy works to make several points about the relationship between Jesus and his people. The first of those deals with the two meanings of even that phrase, his people. There's a way in which many are in Christ by covenantal ties. In Jesus' day, that was connectedness to Israel through birth or initiation by circumcision, Today, that's connectedness to Christ's church through being born into a Christian family or initiation by baptism. This is not in a saving sense, but in a covenantal sense, all these people are connected to Christ. 
They are united to the true vine when they are united to his covenant people. In previous teachings, over the last few chapters, Jesus taught about the world, those who have no connection to him at all. But notice in this analogy, it's all about the branches. He says in verse 2, those who are in me. Kids, this is you. Adults, this is you too. If you've been born into a Christian family, if you've been baptized, or if you've taken membership vows in a Christian church, you are connected to the true vine. And Jesus' sermon here is more than superficially about the obedience expected from all who are connected to him. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Connectedness to Christ anticipates obedience to Christ. And failure to produce this obedience comes with significant consequences. Verse 2, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. I met with someone recently who was upset by what he perceived as the Christian church's overemphasis on morality. He was concerned that we came across to the world as self-righteous and that that was very off-putting, how much we talk about morality and holiness. And I acknowledge to him that self-righteousness in the church is real, and self-righteousness should be off-putting to anybody, including the world. But, Based on the clear teaching of Christ, the answer is not to abandon the pursuit of holiness. It's to practice true holiness, real righteousness. Whatever else Jesus may say about the relationship between Christians and obedience, we can be assured that obedience is essential to the Christian life and that the failure to obey has eternal consequences. He speaks here of the many who are in Christ in a covenantal sense. And yet he draws a distinction between those who obey and those who do not. The former, those who obey, he describes as abiding in him, the true vine. And the contrast is clear. For example, in verse 3, he says, already you are clean. You remember that context? Do you remember the last time Jesus looked at this group of peoples and said something about cleanliness? It was just a little while ago before Judas left and he had to follow it up with not all of you are clean. All the disciples, including Judas, were connected to the true vine. They were all part of Jesus' covenant people, but not all of them would abide in Christ. Those who had been made clean, those who obeyed Jesus will abide. Judas was not clean. He would go out and he would betray him. He would not remain in Christ. As Jesus unpacks the metaphor further, we come to one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. There are many. By Jesus' work for his people, by our faith in the work that Jesus has done, they are made clean. We are clean. And there is an ongoing process of cleansing that takes place from that day until the day we are fully glorified in his coming. Now, the dominant analogy here is not cleansing, it's the true vine. 
And Jesus uses them interchangeably. He says, those who are clean abide in him, the true vine. And so they bear fruit. Verse 5, he it is that bears much fruit. Verse 8, you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And for the Israelite, the analogy was already familiar. Fruitfulness and the idea of a vine were intertwined all throughout the Old Testament. You can find lots of passages about it. Of course, in those passages, in those analogies, the emphasis is most often on Israel's failure to produce fruit. And this is where we get clued in to the seismic shift that is taking place in redemptive history. We often think of the church as the fulfillment of Israel. The church as the people of God to whom Israel was always pointing. And that's true, but there is a very important step in between. Christ. Before the church can bear good fruit, Christ, the true vine, must bear good fruit. He is the one, the true Israel, that produces the fruit that comes naturally of a true son of God. That's why bearing fruit and keeping his commandments are used essentially as synonyms for abiding in him. As another pastor puts it, this is the main lesson of the analogy. Just as a branch bears fruit only when it abides in the vine, so also will believers bear spiritual fruit only when they abide in Christ. He is the true vine. He's the only one who actually produced the fruit of righteousness himself by his own power. He is the only one from whom other branches can produce godly fruit. That's why it says in verse 5, apart from him, you can do nothing. There is no good fruit, no God-pleasing fruit that can be born apart from the true vine, which first, and by his power alone, bears that good fruit. That was unfaithful Israel's problem, and it's what Abraham, by faith, got right. Now, this is the last of Jesus's I am statements. I am the true vine. And it's the only one with an addendum that includes his father. But if you think about it, that should be no surprise, since it's always the whole Trinity who is at work in this seismic shift of redemption history. Who declared you righteous in the Son? The Father. Who gave the Son for your salvation? The Father. Jesus prayed to the Father to send the Spirit to us, and send him he did. The whole Trinity of God is at work in bringing about this change in redemptive history. And here, Jesus identifies two roles the Father carries out with respect to the vine and the branches. The first is among the branches who do not bear fruit, the Judases of the covenant. To the outside world, it looked like Judas was abiding in Christ. But not all Israel are true Israel. Not all who are in the covenant are of the covenant. Judas did not bear fruit, and he did not abide in Christ. These, verse 2, the father cuts away. They wither, verse 6. They're gathered into the fire and burned. It's not enough to look like you belong to Christ, to play the part for others to see. It's not even enough to receive the benefits of the covenant, these means of grace. Any branch that is in Christ but bears no fruit 
the Father himself will cut off. But, and anyone with self-awareness of their own sin breathes a huge sigh of relief here, that is not all the Father is doing. Because even those who are clean are still being cleansed. Even those who are abiding in Christ are not producing all the fruit that they could. And the Father's gardening tasks toward these people, which is us, is that he's tending to the branches. He tends the branches that abide in the true vine. Why? So that we may bear more fruit. He's working on us so that we produce a more plentiful harvest in Christ. Let me read you something. To care for the branches... Individual trimming is to know exactly what each branch needs. And this vine dresser loves the process as much as the product. Each season, the branches become stronger and more stable and produce better fruit as the relationship between the vine dresser, the vine, and the branches grow. That's not from a biblical commentary. That's from Robert Steiner's Lessons from a Venetian Vine Dresser. He's talking about grape vines there, but don't you hear echoes of the Father's work in our lives? That's why he uses the analogy. It's what another writer calls the grace of daily renewal. The Father's work in the life of his child to make her ever more fruitful. The one who has brought forth 30 can probably bring forth 60 or even 100 fold. And so the father does his work on the branches. Now that work can be quite painful in our lives, can't it? If the vines had feelings, I'm not sure they would like the pruning process either. And when it seems that God is going too far, when his pruning cuts too deeply or too persistently, what are we to think? Now, certainly, we must acknowledge the pain of the situation. We don't play pretend. Yet, can we honestly accuse God and say that any of that pruning is unnecessary? Can we say to God that we've arrived at the fullness of holy fruit that we're able to produce? Or must we admit that God could produce even more fruit in us? Beginning in verse 9, Jesus gives what is essentially a commentary on his own analogy. The connections between the two sections are many. The main point is the same. Those who abide in Christ produce Christ-like fruit. And as before, the fruit is obedience. Verse 10, keeping my commandments. Verse 12, love one another. Verse 14, do what I command you. Verse 17, love one another. This is why the essential connection in the analogy is the branches to the true vine. That Jesus, the true Israel, has already produced this fruit. His saving love and his sanctifying power are the essential resources for fruit bearing. His disciples are clean because of the word he has spoken to them. Apart from their connectedness to his saving love and sanctifying power, they can produce nothing. But through them, they can produce all things. Acts 17 says, in him we live and move and have our being. That's the idea of this passage. Without him, cut off from him, we wither and die and are thrown into the fire. Those who abide in him 
abide in his words. And those words, that abiding in him, becomes, as another pastor says, the dynamic of one's life. It's to believe them. And it's to act in accordance with them. It's to go through every day abiding in the word of Christ so much that you believe it is true, come what may, and that it determines what you will do and how you will live. It's the dynamic of your life. Jesus and his word are, in this sense, interchangeable because he is the word made flesh. He's the perfect revelation of the Father. To abide in him is to abide in his word. And obedience to his word is not the thing we have to do in order to abide in Christ. It is abiding in Christ. It's what it is. It's what happens when we live in utter reliance on his saving love and sanctifying power. And we know this, Jesus says, because he is the example of how this works. He's been saying from the beginning of this gospel... Obedience is how Jesus shows that he abides in the Father. It's how he shows his love of the Father. He remains in the Father's love through his obedience. Verse 10, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Among the true vine and the branches, it's the same dynamic that's present because the same cause is present, the love of God. We remain in Jesus' love the same way he remains in the Father's love, obedience. The Father's love is the the cause of Jesus' obedience and of his love for us. Jesus has been saying all throughout this gospel, I'm doing what I'm doing because I love the Father. Why is Jesus loving us? Because the Father loves him. That's the why. And what comes from that why is his obedience. And then it just, that stream just continues down. Jesus' love for us is the cause of our obedience. Why do we live this way? Why do we obey Jesus? Because God loves us. Because Christ loves us. And what is our obedience? It's love of one another. How does love get from the Father to you? Well, in this stream of obedience, it's mediated from the Father to Christ and from Christ to your brothers and sisters in Christ and from them to you. A major component of your experience of the love of God is the love that the people of God should have for you. And it starts with the Father's love. Both parts of Jesus' sermon make clear that obedience is not a pre requisite for abiding we don't obey in order to be connected to christ that's not how it works in fact it's just the opposite abiding is the prerequisite for obedience you can't please god until you abide in christ it's not that we produce fruit so that we become worthy of union with christ without that union with christ we can do nothing Apart from him, we can do nothing, no things, zero things. We can't do them. Any of the things that please God must come from abiding in Christ and from nowhere else. We derive our life, our ability to love from the connection to the vine. That's what produces the fruit in us. And so that fruit is a great clue to what your life really abides in. 
If you look at your life and you don't see the fruit that is love for others, you need to ask yourself, what am I abiding in? Because if you abide in Christ, love for others comes out the other side. (laughs) It's how it works. And when Satan accuses you for whatever reason that you are not in Christ, but you see that love for others, you tell Satan to shut up. You produce the fruit that can be produced by nothing else than you abiding in the true vine. Of course, that's another paradox. That's the Christian life. Here's a good summary. The sinner receives the power to abide in Christ. The more he does so, the more he will experience Christ's loving presence. But the responsibility of abiding in Christ is placed squarely upon man's shoulders. Without exertion, there is no salvation. But the power to exert is a gift of God. It's, it's the paradox. It's all of God, and yet we're, we're not lifeless and uninvolved. We have to take hold by faith of the true vine and live out of the abundance of his fruitfulness. We are entirely reliant on Christ's saving love and sanctifying power. And we are entirely responsible for our own obedience. We're responsible for abiding in the true vine by heeding his word and loving one another. The unity of the church and the fruitfulness of our lives in Christ depends on this. Now, we cannot love one another in the same way that Christ loved us. I've heard some confusing teaching about these verses. It's not what Jesus means by verses 12 and 13. We will almost certainly not lay down our lives for one another. I think very few of us will ever be called to do that. And even if you were, you wouldn't be doing what Christ is talking about here. You wouldn't be dying for them as he died for us. You can't. He's saying that animated by his saving love, and sanctifying power, animated by the fruit of his obedience unto death, laying down his life for us, you can love one another self-sacrificially in the same spirit as Christ's love for us. In those verses, Christ is not pointing first to our work. These ver- that verse is not about us. He's pointing first to His work, what he's about to do as an act of love on the cross, the context that looks forward, the future context through which all of this will make sense and be illuminated. The Father's plan to save was met with complete obedience from the Son, even at great cost to himself. Why? Because the Son loved the Father, and the Father loved the Son. And within that stream of love and obedience, we come along downstream of all the work Christ has done. And we draw our power from which we love one another. The order is everything. The love between the Father and the Son animates the Son's obedience. It's love constraining to obedience. And that is the context in which we should ever and always think about our own. That great hymn, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice can change a slave into a child and duty into choice. Because that might be missed in the vine and branches metaphor, 
Jesus fills in the places here where the metaphor falls short. He introduces this contrast between servants and friends. Both are expected to obey, but servants obey out of duty and obligation. They aren't told why they should obey or what part their obedience plays in the master's loving plans. But friends, friends obey because they love. Friends obey even when it's self-sacrificial. And this is the model for all Christian obedience in marriage, in the home, in all spheres. This kind of love is the model. We obey as friends of Christ, not as slaves. Jesus revealed the Father to the disciples and the Father's loving plan, and they obey now not as servants, but as friends, as those who understand or at least trust the Master's heart. As it is for Jesus' own obedience to the Father, our obedience to him should be motivated by love. Unless you doubt that you are indeed a friend of Jesus, verse 16 reminds us of the one-sided start to this relationship. He chose us. Our certainty in God's love is never because of something we've done or will do. It's because of what God did for and in us. And the paradox reemerges. We can't rightly say that obedience is the entry requirement for abiding in Christ. He chose us and made us clean first. But neither can we say that obedience is the result. Loving obedience, loving God and loving one another, is abiding in Christ. One pastor said, the obedience is not what makes the friends. It's what characterizes the friends. It's what it is to be a friend of Christ, is to be obedient. And this obedience, rather than being the result, produces results. Verse 7 says first, it produces effective prayer. Also verse 17, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. What do you pray for? Think about the conditions Jesus places here on effective prayer. I grumble that my prayers aren't answered the way I want them to be often. And then I have to come to this passage and look at the conditions Jesus places on prayers that are effective, the prayers that are really going to work, turn out the way you want. He says effective prayers are offered by those who love God and do the will of God and derive their lives from the true vine and love one another. Do you see how a person doing those things would be inclined to pray for exactly the kinds of things that God is going to answer and give to them? You see how that could work? That if that's your starting point, the things that you pray for will be exactly the things that God loves and desires to give. Put your prayers on a sorting machine. I was thinking about that golden egg tester in Willy Wonka. And and on one side, you've got change in circumstances. And on the other side, you've got bearing good fruit. And take all of your petitions, all of your prayers, and put them on that sorting machine and figure out how many of your prayers are asking for a change in circumstances and how many are asking for God to bear good fruit in our lives. 
I'll tell you this, when we pray out of love for Christ, for God to bear good fruit in our lives, we will get everything we asked for. The second result is verse 11, fullness of joy. Remember back when Jesus offered peace? He said it wasn't the world's peace he offered, but his own. And here he offers my joy. This is the joy that Jesus possesses, the joy that he alone can give. It's the rejoicing in spirit that comes from the delight and the love within the Trinity. And for us, it's the rejoicing in spirit that comes from abiding in Christ and living within the fruit that he produces in us. And that's not all about circumstances either, is it? The disciples aren't in a happy place right now. Judas has left. Jesus will soon be arrested and put to death. Jesus' own spirit is troubled, and that's got to be unsettling for the disciples. Even so, Jesus, his spirit has peace, and here he says, joy. And he offers it to them. And regardless of your circumstances this morning, he's offering it to you. The disciples have his joy, not because... The circumstances around them are pleasant. The disciples have his joy because they are his friends. They can be confident in that joy because they can be confident by their fruitfulness, by the word he's spoken to them, that they are indeed his friends, that they are made clean. And joy isn't found in loveless obedience, the obedience of servants. Joy is found through obedience motivated by saving love and sanctifying power. That's the kind of obedience that does the heart good. When you love your neighbor as yourself, when you love self-sacrificially, that feeling you have for a moment after that, that is not self-righteousness. That is his joy. That is the master's joy into which you've entered for a moment, for a glimpse. That is what he offers to you. Abiding in the true vine, keeping his commandments, loving one another. That's the joy. And we have access to it anytime we want. We pretend that we don't. Satan tries to convince us that we don't. I can't be joyful in these circumstances. I can't be joyful with this limitation or with this thing that's lacking. But if this is the source of joy, abiding in the true vine in such a way that you're able to love one another self-sacrificially, when is that joy off limits to you? It's never unavailable. What you need is love of God. You see, we think about why we obey. Why do you obey? Or the areas where you don't obey but feel guilty and think that you should. Why do you think that you should? What's motivating you to obey? If it's pride, your obedience will be quite limited and you'll have none of the master's joy. If it's guilt or fear that motivates you to obey, it'll be the same. You can't obey much, and it's joyless. Those are not how or why Jesus obeys his Father, and they're not the ways we abide in him. What we need is love of God. That's what Jesus has. That's what fuels him. 
And it's why he can find joy in obedience, because that obedience is done in love. As one writer put it, our love for Jesus is the wellspring of our obedience to him. Our obedience demonstrates the reality of that love. It's game-changing. I will tell you, deeply personal to me, it is absolutely game-changing. If you can shift your perspective from obedience as a joyless duty, having to love others, not getting what you want, laying down your pride, repenting, thinking more highly of others than yourself. If you can change your perspective on why you love others, and instead of coming at it from the duty of a servant, come at it from the the loving response of a friend, change everything. You enter into your master's joy. You get just that little foretaste of what glory will be like. We must abide in Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing and everything we try will backfire and will be exhausting. We must abide in Christ. Without him, we wither and we die and we're cast into the pile to burn. And so when our obedience is lacking, when our love for one another is weak, What do we do? Draw in more closely to the vine. Satan is a liar. He will tell you that when your obedience is lacking, what you need to do is go further from God. You should be ashamed of God. And it's a lie. Draw in more closely to the vine. Draw more deeply from the wellspring of his love. When your obedience is failing, Fear, guilt, pride, or despair are closing in. When your obedience is failing, set yourself in direct contact with God's love for you in Christ. Draw in as close as you can come. That's what the means of grace do, by the way. That's why we worship the way we worship. Because some Sundays we are coming here and deep within our spirits, we think that we ought to get as far away from God as possible. How could we ever approach him? And we come and he sends a spirit because he promised he would. And he speaks to us from his word because he promised he would. And he hears our prayers and in fact takes our prayers into the throne room of the Father and makes the petitions on our behalf because he said that he would. That's what the means of grace do. They draw us as closely to God as we can possibly be so that we can regain the confidence that because of God, you are a friend of God. Whatever this week convinced you of, whatever shame and doubt and fear entered into your mind, however alienated and apart you feel from God, we come here so that we can be confident that because of God, we are friends of God. And then from that love, we obey. That our prayers may be answered and that our joy may be full to the glory of God in Christ. Amen.